This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Today we're wrapping up our series called Saved, and what a series it's been. We've explored the entire book of Ephesians together, verse by verse, one chapter at a time, looking at what it means to live a saved life, a life that is fully loved, graced, reconciled, unified, made alive, and raised up together with Christ in heavenly places. And then over the past two weeks, we've talked about what it means to walk in love, walk in the light, and walk by the Spirit's power. Last week, Pastor Jim Shadler shared about how that is supposed to actually play out in our marriages and families and in the workplace. He ended with Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, which is exactly where we're going to pick up today. If you have your Bibles, go with me to the book of Ephesians once again, chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. I'll be reading from the ESV, and here's what it says. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Picking right up from where we ended last week, Paul brings us a final word of encouragement here. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, from first glance, this might seem kind of redundant or even easy to look beyond, but I believe there's a real key for us here that God wants us to consider today, and it's this. You and me are not strong enough on our own. You're not strong enough on your own. Many of us get frustrated in life because we try to do life on our own, according to our strength. We then wonder why we're so burnt out or exhausted or disappointed with the results. And the reason is God created you and God created me to be dependent upon him. Can I repeat that? God created you and he created me to be dependent upon him. We were created, or we might even say hardwired, with the need to be plugged into a direct power source. Let me give you an example here. When I typically go to use the internet at my house, I'll use the Wi-Fi to connect. But before that, my Wi-Fi is provided to me via a modem that is plugged into the wall and is receiving a signal from a source. In our case, it's the cable company. Now, sometimes my Wi-Fi goes out, and if this happens long enough, I'll usually call the cable company to see if they can come and help me troubleshoot the issue or the problem. And what's the very first thing that tech support always asks you when you get on the phone? Sir, is your modem on? Are you receiving power? Now, that seems like a redundant thing to ask or point out. Am I right? Yeah, we're usually frustrated with that question. But why are they trained to ask us that question first? Well, I believe it's because they know that no matter what we do, no matter what steps we take or the help that, we, that they want to be able to help provide us, it won't matter if our modem's not plugged in. In other words, it's all for nothing without a power source. Well, in the same sense, so is our life with God. It won't matter what steps you take, all the ways in which you try to troubleshoot your life, job, relationships. It's all for nothing if you're not plugged in to Him, receiving His power and strength because once again you and I were created to be dependent upon him which means that we need his power we need his strength we need his grace we need all of him that we can possibly receive and we know this for many reasons some of which we're about to discuss in the verses ahead he says be strong in the Lord and in the strength or power of his might not your might 
not your strength, not your good works, come on, not your efforts, not even your own intellect. As I pointed out at the beginning of this series weeks ago, our life with God all boils down to whether or not you and I are in Christ or not. If you remain in Christ or abide in Him, then the promise is that He will remain in you. And if, and if He remains in you or abides in you and His words remain or abide in you, then you will be able to ask Him for anything and it will be granted to you. How awesome is that? Church, the truth is this. We need to be strong in the Lord. Your family needs you to be strong in the Lord. Your spouse needs you to be strong in the Lord. Your kids need you to be strong in the Lord. And guess what else? The world needs us to be strong in the Lord. Last time I checked, we still serve an all-powerful God. Is there anything that's too difficult for Him? Is there anything that's impossible for Him to do? Of course not. This means that we need to learn to lean into God's strength when times get tough, like they have. This means that we need to trust His ability over our own. This means that we need to look to Him for the answers that we don't currently possess. This means that we need to make margin in our life for God to do the miraculous. I don't know about you, but I want to see God do the miraculous in my life. I want to believe him for some impossible things this year. And the good news is he invites us to do just that. Verse 11, therefore put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So why do we need God's strength and power in our life? Because, as it turns out, we have an enemy for our souls, and his name is the devil. He goes by Satan, or the accuser. He's the liar. He's the thief. He's the destroyer. He goes by many names. And he wants to carry out his evil schemes against us, and against our families, and our friends, and our churches, and our cities, and our nations. More specifically, he wants to carry out his evil schemes against you. Why? Because he absolutely hates you. He hates that you are the crown of God's creation. He hates that God has shown himself merciful to you. He hates that God pours out grace upon grace to you. He hates that Jesus gave up his life for you and that he went to the cross for you. He hates the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and he wants to disrupt it as much as he possibly can, which means that we need to wake up and we need to remain awake. And I'm not just talking about being socially or politically woke. No, I'm talking about spiritually awake. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Remember this, the devil is your adversary. He's not your friend. As I said a few weeks ago, the darkness does not play nicely with the light, and it is not your friend. It is your adversary. And the devil, the prince of darkness... Is prowling. The imagery here is that of a lion who stalks its prey. The, the devil is prowling around like a lion looking for a way to devour you, whether that be through an open door that you've provided him, say through pornography or substance abuse, or flat out through giving him a place of influence in your mind, like when you believe his deception and lies. Remember, when you believe the lie, you empower the liar. And that's the picture here that the scriptures paint for us about our enemy. Furthermore, Paul wants us to know that we don't just have a single enemy for our souls, but we also have enemies, meaning many or plural adversaries that are at work against us. Verse 12 says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we know that the devil is working against us, and we know as the people of God, so are the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers who operate in this present darkness, which Paul says are spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Paul He's saying, listen, there's more to this world than you and I know. There's this war going on, this battle being waged in the heavenlies where you and I are actually seated with Christ. We're not really wrestling here on earth with flesh and blood. In other words, with people or with racism or political parties or economic disparity or you fill in the blank. That's not really the issue. What we're really wrestling with are forces of wickedness that are opposed to God's kingdom rule and reign being carried out on the earth as it already is in heaven. That's the real conflict or rub that we're talking about. And so we need to be aware and alert and sober and vigilant so that we can stand, so that we can conduct ourselves appropriately, which means we don't overestimate the demonic or blame the devil for every time we stub our toe or get a flat tire. Come on. Not everything is the devil's fault, even though we like to place a lot of blame at his feet. But we also don't equally underestimate him or the demonic's desire and ability to oppose us either. C.S. Lewis, in his classic book, The Screwtape Letters, writes this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils or the demonic, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. The idea here is that we don't go looking for a demon on every doorstep, but we also don't pull the covers up over our heads and pretend like everything's fine when it's not. As I said, we are in a battle, and we are called, as Paul says here to the Ephesians, to put on the full armor of God and to stand against this adversary. And that means taking an offensive position, not just a defensive one. Verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Here's what I've learned about standing. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Can I repeat that? If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Meaning, if you're not willing to take a stand against the devil or to stand up for what's right in your life, at some point or another, you're going to be misled and you're going to fall victim to someone or something. And that's not what God wants for you. That's not what we as a church want for you either. Friends, we want you to be able to withstand all that the enemy tries to throw at you and to do so by standing firm in Christ Jesus. That's why we speak so much about Jesus, because only a relationship that is rooted in and built upon the life of Jesus can withstand the storms of life and all the devil's devices. So how do we do that? How do we stand firm? And what is this, this whole or full armor of God that Paul's speaking about here? Well, fortunately for us, Paul goes on to provide us some clear answers in his response in the next few verses. Verses 14 through 18 says this, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, 
In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So let's break this down a little bit and process each piece of armor and each weapon that God has placed at our disposal. Shall we? Okay. Verse 14 says this, having fastened on the belt of truth. Friends, if there was ever a time in history where we needed truth, it's right now. Can I get an amen or a emoji or a thumbs up out there? The danger of politics, and especially in an election year, is that each side claims to speak on behalf of the truth. Even more so, we now live in a day and an age where people claim to speak their truth, as in their perspective on how they feel based on their emotional response to what they've gone through or experienced. And what makes this so particularly dangerous is that it appeals to a standard that is more like a moving target. What is true for me may not necessarily be true for you, people say. And what is true today may no longer be true tomorrow. And we've all heard this kind of talk before, haven't we? Of course we have. But I'm here to boldly declare this today, that there is actually only one truth, and his name is Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So as it turns out, truth is not just the summation of all that we know or experience in life. It's not just about obtaining objective facts. Truth is about a relationship we have to the person of truth, Jesus Christ himself. And Paul here says, you've got to be girded up in this reality. You've got to be held together with truth. Your life needs to be enveloped and surrounded by truth, like a belt. And in the same way that a belt holds things together and keeps your pants from slipping, truth holds us together and keeps us from slipping into error and deception and lies. Paul continues, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness... I love that Paul likens righteousness to a breastplate. And he says that you and I are to put it on. In the scriptures, one of my favorite pictures of us as believers and as children of God is as those who've been given these robes of righteousness to wear. It's a symbolic picture of how God wants to clothe us with his righteousness. In contrast, we know that our righteousness, apart from Christ, is like filthy rags to him. It's like you and I putting on something that is stained and torn and covered in dirt and filth and saying to God, well, don't I look pretty? No, unfortunately, apart from Christ, we're all as ugly as sin, which is why we need his righteousness. And friends, that's the good news about Jesus because 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21 reminds us, God made him, meaning Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So as it turns out, we become what we put on. Can I say it again? We become what we put on. So if we put on Christ, guess what? We become his righteousness. And all that he is is ours, including his right and perfect relationship with the Father. But if we put on our pride parade and glory in our own ways, guess what? We become a sad display of everything that reeks of self-centeredness and self-importance in the earth. And people don't really want to be around us, do they? Because, as it turns out, for as much as we like to make a spectacle of ourselves and our pride, deep down, there's not enough makeup to cover up our brokenness and our insecurity. God sees it. And others do too. 
This is the reason I believe the scriptures say that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, because there's nothing more offensive or repulsive than someone who is full of themselves. Am I right? You bet I am. And so Paul says, don't clothe yourselves that way. Don't offer up your own filthy rags. Instead, put on God's righteousness and let it clothe you like a breastplate of armor. Let it protect your heart and vital organs so that the enemy can't exploit them and fatally wound you. Verse 15, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Elsewhere in scripture, it says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The word gospel here in both instances, means good news. And it's the good news about what Jesus has done via the cross to bring peace between us and God, to remove the hostility that once existed between us. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? You want to talk about what it means to be saved? I mean, that is the name of this series. Well, this is it. While you and I were enemies of God, whether through ignorance or blatant rebellion, Christ died for us, and he died to become our peace and reconciliation so that we could be brought near and be given his saving life. This is the news that changes everything, and it's meant to give readiness to your feet to bring that same message and news of peace and reconciliation to others around you. Being a person of good news doesn't mean that you're happy, clappy all the time or that you're nothing but positive every second of the day. Come on, no. It means that the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ has forever changed and marked you. And it's in its changing you that it also changes your willingness to think about others beyond yourself. So Paul says it's this gospel that now covers your feet implying that everywhere you stand and everywhere you go, you're called to live on mission, to bring the heart of God to the heart of man. Which brings us to our next piece of God's armor, verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. In case you didn't know this, your attempt to bring the gospel of peace to people is not always going to be well received. And the devil is actually going to oppose you every step of the way. And he's going to do so through flaming arrows meant to pierce even your breastplate of righteousness in Christ. Which means that even if you have your breastplate on, uh, in the first place, meaning you know that you're a child of God, you know that you're in a right relationship with God through the justifying and cleansing blood of Jesus, the enemy is still going to attack your identity in Christ, which is why you need a shield. Come on. And that shield is your faith. Hebrews tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. People of God, what you believe when you cannot see, is more important than what you believe when you can see. The scriptures say that we walk by faith and not by sight. Why? Because you're going to face battles where sometimes the fog of war is going to be so thick and the darkness so deep that you won't be able to depend on what is visible to you. In other words, you're going to have to trust God. And that's really what faith is, isn't it? It's learning to trust God. God, when we cannot see or know or sense or feel or discern what the heck is going on. It's learning to say, God, not my will, but yours be done. 
Did you know that's actually one of the most powerful prayers that you and I can pray? It's not fatalistic or laissez-faire to pray that way either. Jesus actually showed us how to pray this way in the garden. You're, you're essentially saying, God, I trust you and I trust your ways and I trust your heart toward me is good and I trust that you are the source and the director of my life. Jesus prayed this way in the garden. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Friends, faith is recognizing that God is actually sovereign and king over all things, including creation, over the enemy and his minions, over the world and its politics, over you and over me. Faith is believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord over all. And this is why it makes for such a great shield of defense. Because when you grab a hold of your faith, even when the shadows befall you, even when tough times come, and they will, even when you get that bad diagnosis from the doctor, you know that God is actually for you and that he is with you every step of the way. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Following Jesus, it's not easy. It's not for the faint of heart. But it's the best possible way to live. And so Paul says, church, lift up your shields. The flaming arrows, they're coming. In other words, stay in faith. Stay in faith. Stay in faith. Stay in faith. Come on, church. Let's lift up our faith. And then in verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Believers, put on your helmet of salvation and lift up your sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Paul says. And I love that he illustrates salvation as a helmet, because where does a helmet reside? On your head, of course. It encapsulates and protects your mind and your thoughts. It's almost as if God is saying to us, you need saved thoughts. In other words, you need to have your mind renewed, because the battlefield for all of us is not just what happens out there, but what happens right here, right between our two ears. And this is the truth. So much of what we wrestle with in our life happens in our mind, which is why we need God to bring salvation and renewal to our thought life. And this is something that we should all be seeking daily for our lives. This is also why Paul would say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, meaning you've got to flesh this thing out every single day of your life. And that starts with how you think. Even the word repentance that we talk about means to change your mind or to change your thinking. It's acknowledging the new thing that God has done and then thinking differently about it and hence living with a changed heart as in your desires and attitudes and beliefs. When the writers of the Hebrew scriptures spoke about the heart, this is exactly what they meant. They meant our mind. They meant our inner thought life. Even though they didn't have the study of neurological science back then, they were onto this concept thousands of years before the rest of us could even catch up. So having a changed heart, we would say, is essentially the same thing as having changed thoughts and beliefs, which also implies that you have to guard this. And how do you best guard your mind and your thoughts? With a helmet of salvation. And, Paul continues, you take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. One of the primary reasons that I wanted to do an expository message series through the entire book of Ephesians is because I've come to realize that most of us don't actually really know God's word. And that's not meant to condemn or judge anybody, but it should challenge us to personally reconsider how we're wielding or not wielding one of the greatest weapons that we've been handed in this fight. Paul calls this 
sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. It's the Word of God or the, the words of God, which we also know are spirit and life to us, meaning they originate from God and from His very Spirit, and they are also the words recorded and written down by man. And so some people say, well, the Bible is just a collection of human stories and writings and poetry and such. And yes, that's true, but it's also alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword because it's also the inspired God-breathed word and revelation of God himself given to us as attested to by his prophets and poets and kings, by his disciples and those who witnessed Jesus do what he did, and by those that Jesus personally gave insight and revelation to. In this way, we would say that the Bible is the inspired and living word of God, as Paul did in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. He says this, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. As Christians, we believe this. We believe that the scriptures are God-breathed and a powerful tool for our lives. Just like a sword is a powerful tool in the hands of someone who knows how to wield it properly. Come on. Unfortunately, there have been many hurt by those who have wielded God's word wrongly, either out of ignorance or misguided zeal. And to all of you out there watching today that have been hurt by somebody who has used the Bible to bash you or condemn you, I want to sincerely apologize because the sword of the Spirit was never meant to be used on flesh and blood. It was intended to be used against our common enemy, our adversary, the devil. And church, that's what we have to remember. You bashing someone online with scripture to prove your point, it's not going to do any good. First of all, if the eyes of their heart haven't even been opened to it yet, they won't be able to see the truth, even if it's smacking them in the face. So rather than proof texting or taking verses out of context to try to win an argument with someone, why don't we share God's word in love and take the time to explain it where we can and, and bring clarity where it's needed and trust that God is actually able to bring forth a harvest in his time. After all, it's his word. Amen. I've never met anybody that's been won over in an argument by someone violently smacking them in the face with something. And that's the illustration here. The point might seem a little controversial to some, but remember, it's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. The kindness of God. Verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Praying at all times in the spirit, he says, this is a weapon of our warfare against darkness and sadly one that is often left out when talking about the whole armor of God. It's like we like to choose our favorites. But the truth is this, God wants you to pray, and he wants you to pray at all times, and he wants you to do so in the Spirit, meaning under the Spirit's influence. And it's this kind of praying that keeps us alert with all perseverance, and that enables us to make supplication for all the saints, which is another fancy word for the church. And an important point that I want to make about this before we move on, Paul talks a lot about different ways that we can pray all throughout the New Testament. Most specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 15, he says this, Well then, what shall I do? I will pray in the Spirit, and I will also pray in words I understand. I will sing in the Spirit, and I will also sing in words I understand. So we see that you can pray with your mind, with words and thoughts that make sense to you. That's good. We all do that. And you can pray with your spirit. You can sing with your mind, with words and thoughts that you understand, and we do that. 
And you can also sing in the Spirit. So what does it mean to pray or to sing in the Spirit? I think we got the first part okay. Well, here and elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks about praying in the tongues of men and in the tongues of angels and through speech that is intelligible and speech that is unintelligible. He gives us some practical advice about what that's supposed to look like when we gather together corporately as well. And I want to say this about tongues. As somebody who loves the language of the Spirit, who loves to pray in the Spirit, and with words that are often unintelligible, meaning I don't always understand them, I believe that this prayer language is actually open and available to all believers. And why do I believe that? Because Paul would say things in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1-2, through 2, like, earnestly pursue love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to man, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries in the Spirit. So number one, we're told to eagerly desire the spiritual gifts or the spirituals because the Greek word here is pneumatikos and the word gift is not actually present in the Greek text. So we're told to actually eagerly desire and be passionate after these spirituals or these spiritual things. Why would God tell us to desire something that he won't give us? That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, does it? And number two, we're told that when we speak in tongues, we speak directly to God by uttering mysteries in the Spirit. As believers, I believe this means there should be an element of mystery to this part of our prayer language. And we should be okay with that mystery and comfortable when we hear other people speak it as well, not afraid or freaked out. And of course, we're often afraid of things we don't always understand or haven't experienced. I totally get that, totally understand. My encouragement to you is this, to seek after God about this and to pray about it, to really pray about this. Additionally, when we gather corporately together, Paul's preference is that we don't create a spectacle over tongues due to unbelievers coming in not having a context or understanding for it. And that also makes a lot of sense to me as well. Instead, he says, I actually wish that you would seek to prophesy. Now, we could get into that, but that's another matter altogether and a message series we'll do down the road, I'm sure. So here's what I'm saying. Not everyone will pray in tongues or with words that are unintelligible or uh, the mysteries of the Spirit, but Paul seems to indicate that this language is available to all. Otherwise, he wouldn't also admonish us here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, to pray at all times in the Spirit. And then go on to add, with prayer and supplication, which are to be made for the church. Please notice that I said that tongues are for all and available to all, but God won't force it on all. Why? Because this is about an invitation to a relationship, not a coercion of force or a manipulation. So if you're interested or hungry for these things, seek and ask. And if you're not, well, that's okay too. But let's trust God with it, amen? And finally, verses 19 through 20. And also for me, he says, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. As we come to the end of this letter, Paul ends right where he began, as a prisoner in chains, not to the Roman Empire, but to Christ, as his ambassador, someone who is a representative of his kingdom and government. Church, that's what we are too. We are ambassadors of the kingdom of God and this gospel that he's entrusted to us. So let's get on with boldly proclaiming it, amen? Beginning next week, we're going to be kicking off a brand new message series about the kingdom of God and these extraordinary times that we're living in. And I'm so excited about it. I can't wait to reveal how we're going to walk through all that. But until then, God wants to encourage you today with this final thought. 
Even though you're in a spiritual battle, God has already won the war. And you and I are not fighting for a victory. You and I are fighting from victory. Because of what Jesus has already done and victoriously accomplished on the cross, and having done all that we know to do, we now stand firm in this reality, having been equipped with the full or whole armor of God and with every good weapon needed for the fight. Remember, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly, but they are mighty in God for the pulling down of every stronghold. That's right, every stronghold. So make no mistake, regardless of where the enemy is currently holding up or trying to illegally occupy territory that no longer belongs to him by right, Satan is still a defeated foe. He's still a conquered prince. He may still be roaming the land like a prowling lion looking for someone to devour, but he's not the lion. Come on, there's only one true lion, and that is the lion from the tribe of Judah. His name is Jesus, and he's already crushed in this serpent's head. And the good news is that there's coming a day real soon where he, meaning Jesus, our great and victorious King, where he'll come again in triumphant glory to finally evict and eradicate this conquered foe once and for all. Friends, I've read the end of the book and guess what? We win. So in the meantime, let's not fight with our families or friends or neighbors. Our battle is not with flesh and blood or with political parties or systems. No, let's get on with being a people of good news, a people whose feet are ready and swift to declare God's gospel of peace to this broken and dying world. Can I get an amen today? Amen. Maybe you've been watching or listening to this message today and God has gripped your heart. Maybe you don't even know Jesus yet. And I want to give you the opportunity to get to know him and to be filled with his spirit today. And I believe that begins when you say yes to him, when you open your heart to him. And so I want to invite you to pray this simple prayer with me. And it goes like this. Jesus, Savior, save me. Save me from myself. Save me from the things that have kept me bound. I believe and confess that you are the son of God, the Messiah. I believe and confess that you died on that cross for me and that God raised you to life again. Jesus, I ask that you would give me a new life of freedom and hope in you. Come fill me now with your Holy Spirit and make all things new. And if you just prayed that with us today, we want to know about your decision. We want to celebrate with you. For those that said yes to Jesus for the very first time, we also want to say welcome to the family. And we'd love to help you get connected either here at Courageous Church or wherever you're watching from. Or maybe today you recommitted your life to Christ today. You, you said, Jesus, I've turned my back on you, but I'm here and I'm ready to go all in. Either way, we'd love to help you. And here's how. You can go to CourageousChurch.com to fill out a digital connect card. This will help our team know how to best follow up with you and pray for you in the days ahead. We also want to come alongside you as you begin your new faith journey by sending you a Bible and helping you take some next steps. For those of you that are here local in the Salt Lake Valley, we're currently gathering outdoors at City Hall Park in Holiday on Sundays at 10 a.m. And we'd absolutely love to invite you to join us. We also have a prayer night happening this Tuesday at 7.30. That's right, we've been gathering every Tuesday at 7.30 for prayer, where we come together as a church to fervently pray for our families and our city and our nation and our leaders. And if there's ever been a time to come together and pray, it's right now. We'd love for you to come out and join us. As always, if Courageous Church is your home church, we want to remind you to honor God with your best. That means your giving, your generosity, and it allows us to do what we do, to reach others with the hope, healing, courage, and life of God. It allows us to continue to advance God's good mission and good news for the people of Salt Lake City, the Mountain West, and beyond. So if you want to be a part 
of what God's doing with this church to make a big difference, we'd love for you to help us by going to courageouschurch.com slash giving to give online. You can also mail it in or text it as well. We want you to know that we love you. We're praying for you as always. You are God's masterpiece. You are his very best. So remember, be strong in the power of God's might and be courageous. We'll see you soon. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at CourageousChurch.com.